0: This week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell.
1: I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garda.
0: It's Thursday, February 16th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week.
1: Fasnera Simmons, CEO of Novartis and the new chairman of Pharma, joins us to discuss the industry's struggles in Washington and whether the biotech industry is still overvalued.
0: We'll also explain the latest news in the life sciences, including a vaccine promise from Moderna and the possible presidential run of a former biotech CEO.
2: But first, a word from our sponsor.
3: Attention, healthcare innovators and biotech enthusiasts. Are you ready to explore the intersection of medicine, biology, and technology? Then mark your calendars for the STAT Breakthrough Summit this spring in San Francisco. This event brings together leaders across the industry to discuss how to unlock the full potential of this exciting new era in medicine. Speakers include Stephen Gillett, the CEO of Verily, and Jennifer Doudna, the co-inventor of CRISPR. These experts will share their insights on how technology and innovation are transforming healthcare for the benefit of patients. Plus, the summit will be led by STAT reporters, giving you access to the latest developments in the field and in-depth analysis of the industry. So join us this May 3rd and 4th at the STAT Breakthrough Summit and be a part of the conversations delving into the incredible advancements happening in the field that are shaping the future of healthcare. Learn more and register today for a limited discounted ticket at statnews.com slash summit.
1: So leading off this week with some interesting news from Moderna, which of course markets one of the approved COVID-19 vaccines in the United States, and which had said in the past, much like Pfizer, another marketer of such vaccines, that it would raise the price somewhat considerably of each dose of its COVID-19 vaccine once those vaccines stop being distributed for free by the government and move on into commercial insurance. Now, the news is, Moderna said they are committed to ensuring that anyone anyone in the United States who wants a booster dose of its vaccine can get it without paying any money out of pocket. And the details there basically are that they will... Institute one of the drug industry's familiar patient assistance programs, such that people who are uninsured or underinsured can get their doses for free by, you know, Moderna moving money around so as to cover them. But what it didn't really make clear is how the company would ensure that the everybody else who's on commercial insurance would also pay zero dollars out of pocket. Meg, what did you make of the the announcement?
0: Well, it kind of came out of nowhere. It just landed in my inbox, um, and then I realized. Because another thing landed in my inbox from Senator Bernie Sanders's press office uh, touting that Moderna CEO Stefan Bonsell had agreed to appear uh, and testify in a hearing sort of hilariously titled taxpayers paid billions for it. So why would Moderna consider quadrupling the price of the COVID vaccine? <laughs> <laughs> I think we're in the new era of, of Bernie Sanders helming the Senate Health Committee. And this is going to be very um interesting to watch. Um, so I wonder actually if Stefan Bonsell is going to DC in person. This is a, um, a hearing that's happening on March 22nd, or if this is going to be virtual, because when these things happen virtually, it's much less uncomfortable for the CEOs, it <laughs> seems like, because they're not always on camera. Um, but I do think it's interesting that Bonsell accepted this invitation to testify, it clearly shows that he thinks they are in the right here and they're doing, you know, the right stuff and that he can stand up to the berating he's inevitably going to get from Bernie Sanders. Um, You know, this was presented as sort of Moderna making an about face after pressure from Bernie Sanders. And I don't know what happened behind the scenes at Moderna, um, but it didn't necessarily seem that way to me. It seems like a fairly standard Thing for a company to do to a have a patient assistance program for people who are uninsured or underinsured. Uh, From the insurance standpoint, you know this is something that Pfizer CEO Albert Borla has been out there on as well, actually saying that there are provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act that would uh, take away any copays that insured people have, including for COVID vaccines. Um, I don't know the ins and outs of that, and because it doesn't seem like this is something that people are accepting. Concretely, uh, I do need to understand that better, but perhaps that is something that uh, would explain why people with insurance would not have a copay.
2: I was confused by this because, from what I understand it, and you know, I think we're, you know anyone who has private insurance, even you know, probably through their employer. I mean, a lot of vaccines, including listed, like probably the flu vaccine, is probably what we're most familiar with, are are offered for free. It's part of your your insurance coverage, and you don't you don't pay copay, you don't pay for the vaccine. So my impression was that COVID vaccines would be covered similarly. Is that not correct? Anyone? Anyone it, have an idea about that? I
0: think it. <laughs> I think it's probably <laughs> similar, um, and I don't think that there's some massive change. It's not like Moderna saying, "Okay, no, we're not quadrupling the price anymore." Like they're probably still increasing the the list price of these vaccines, um, and insurance will cover them, so there's still a higher cost to the system. Um, but you know, the the actual cost to uh, people who want to get the vaccines, they are saying should still be. Nothing <laughs> so I guess we'll see how this plays out and on march twenty second we will see Stefan Bunsell and Bernie Sanders head to head
2: i, I will, will it'll be particularly fun to to listen to Stefan Bunsell speak to Bernie Sanders just given their uh differing accents. Let's keep it you know put it that way yeah
1: two yeah. two mellifluous speakers of the English language. I would say if in fact moderna's statement is related to. Bonsell's coming appearance uh, at this hearing, then I was wrong. We we spoke on this podcast before about what a Sanders-led Senate help committee might mean and whether it would lead to, you know, anything meaningful. And I said, certainly no legislation and probably nothing meaningful at all, but maybe some entertaining committee hearings. But if, you know, this hearing is happening and if Moderna made this pledge, which maybe they were going to make otherwise, it does suggest that, I mean, this being the first salvo, I think, of Sanders running the help committee and maybe not the, this probably won't be the last pharmaceutical CEO who is called before them for something conceivably theatrical. So, you know, this could be an interesting, interesting period of time.
0: Okay. So we have a great interview to get to with Vaznar Uh So we want to leave lots of room for that. So we're going to do a lightning round of a few other important topics uh, of biotech news this week, starting with, and do it quickly, Adam, Biogen earnings.
2: Yeah, Biogen, you know, this was the first opportunity for investors to hear uh new CEO Chris Vebacker speak on an earnings call. Obviously he's spoken before, he was at the JP Morgan conference, but this was his first earnings call. no big surprises uh on the call. Uh you know, the company guided down earning uh earnings and revenue for for the coming year, but that was expected. You know, I think that probably the my biggest takeaway is that um you know, as someone who covers biotech, uh, who covers Biogen pretty closely. You know, uh, my enemy is boring. Uh, I, I do not like the mundane. I do not like boring. I don't think Chris Vacker is going to be boring. I think he is, you know, he's been put in place at Biogen to shake things up, to take some risks. Uh, he will uh, need the uh, alignment with his board, which, as we know, has been particularly fractious, uh, although we did hear some news that uh, Stelios Papadopoulos, uh, the longtime chairman, is resigning from the board, stepping back from the board, and that's due to Biogen's uh, mandatory uh, age retirement policy. Um, but yeah, I think uh, it'll be an exciting, you know, months, months and years ahead with Chris Wiebacher running Biogen.
0: The retirement of the godfather. He'll still be the godfather.
1: I was going to say, you know, just when you think you're out, famously, they pull you back in. But we can Ooh.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I see that as a lead to a, to a future story that Davian <laughs> will write about Stelios. Moving on, Meg, uh, tell us about this advisory committee meeting uh, pertaining to Narcan.
0: Yeah. So, of course, Narcan is the brand name uh, for the nasal spray version of naloxone, the opioid overdose antidote, this you know incredible drug that's been around since the 70s, which can literally wake somebody up from an op- opioid overdose. Um, right now, these are all prescription based. So this was an advisory committee meeting to consider emergent biosolutions application to take Narcan over the counter. Everybody remembers Emergent Biosolutions. This is the (laughs) company that uh, famously, during the pandemic, was manufacturing the J and J vaccine and the Astrazeneca vaccine and mixed up some of the ingredients. So, you know, Narcan is going to face generic competition fairly soon. And so, some analysts I was talking with said, you know, they are doing this essentially uh, because they're about to face cheap generic copies. But also, from a public health standpoint, this is incredibly important: increasing access to Narcan. could help save lives. And the committee ended up voting 19 to 0 in favor of turning this over the counter. Now, the question is going to be, where does Emergent Biosolutions price this? Does it actually make it accessible for people? Uh, Some of the reporting I've been doing suggests it's still going to be fairly pricey uh, for people to be paying for this, you know, even though it's not prescription. But I guess we're going to have to see Emergent Biosolutions as saying it's premature to discuss pricing, unsurprisingly. Uh, (laughs) But it does sound like the FDA is likely to approve this uh, to move over The counter, Um, and then you know we'll have to see what happens to the other versions of naloxone, which are injectable. Uh, Will they also try to move over the counter? Uh, And what will happen when generic copies come to the market? But you know, most importantly, hopefully this will increase access to this drug. All
2: right. So next up, Damien, tell us about J and J's new chief scientific officer.
1: Yeah. So early one morning, we learned that John Reed, who had spent about five years running the research and development operation at Sanofi would be leaving the company. And then about eight hours after that, did we learn that J&J had hired him to do basically the same job, which I think is notable in that when you zoom out, that means he's replacing Matai Maman, who who we've spoken about, was briefly a candidate for the Biogen CEO position, who left J&J's top research position. Similarly, over at Novartis, Jay Bradner um, left the analogous position there. And I guess maybe this is looking for a trend where one doesn't exist, but there does seem to be a little bit of musical chairs in the highest ranks of science in the pharmaceutical industry. Maybe there's nothing to read through. Each of those people had multi-year tenures and people tend to move around in jobs like that. But, you know, that in in keeping with or happening at the same time as the CEO transition at Bayer, which I don't think we spoke about um, on this podcast, there's just change afoot at the highest levels of some of the largest drug makers, specifically um in Europe and I don't know maybe there's an explanation for that but I haven't connected the dots to the point where I have a thesis to present.
0: You're still in this stage where you have a clip, you know, a big board on the wall and red mm-hmm. string trying to connect. I've got a lot of red string. Heads yeah. of R and D and all that. I haven't European.
1: slept in weeks. Yeah.
0: Speaking of change, um, a biotech entrepreneur and investor <laughs> uh, is considering a presidential run. Apparently, Adam, tell us about Vivek Ramaswamy.
2: Yeah. So there was a story in Politico this week uh, that basically said that Vivek Ramaswamy, as you said, Meg, he's the uh, biotech entrepreneur, former hedge fund manager, uh, probably people know him most as the, I guess the former CEO of Roy Vant, now he's chairman of Roy Vant, that he is uh, testing the waters. Is that, I guess that's the political term, right? Testing the waters of a presidential run. Um, I guess largely on this sort of anti-woke, platform that he has championed, uh, mostly through uh, a book that he's written, and uh, many, many, many appearances on Fox TV cable, the cable network.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting. Well, first of all, politics is hilarious, because yeah, it is described as testing the waters. But reading the Politico story about this testing of the waters, testing the waters means he's hired like 15 people um, I'm sure, you know, and, and the story and, and story and gotten a story
2: published in Politico. That's probably right, yeah, part yeah, of this it's right? Very,
1: yeah. Whatever. That's neither here nor there. Um, I think what's interesting is, yeah, to, to your point, Vivek's star turn on Tucker Carlson and elsewhere is based on this notion that wealth managers, the Black Rocks of the world, by focusing on what is described as ESG and, um, you know, racial and ethnic diversity and gender diversity and spending your money is the way it goes. If, if you are a person with a retirement account that's managed by one of these massive fund managers to advance a political agenda that is, according to Vivek, kind of at odds with mainstream America. And it's kind of like a niche point. Like it, It's hard to imagine going to a diner in Iowa and really connecting with some random person on the notion of Woke fund managers, you know, or that like Fidelity has gotten, has been taken over by a leftist cabal within Wall Street. It feels like a little bit of an absurdity. But obviously, if Vivek has gotten this far in this process, then he has consulted with the various powers that be and knowers of how things work within the Republican Party such that he feels like and they feel like he has a shot. I'm interested to see how this plays out. I'm interested to watch the evolution of his message as he takes it to a larger kind of like GOP populace and I'm reticent to write it off in part because you know it's 2023 in 2015 I would have said as did many people that Donald Trump had very little chance of winning the Republican primary let alone the presidency and of course both of those things eventually happen I'm not likening Vivek to Trump necessarily but I just don't feel confident enough to make any kind of prediction as to how this is going to go
0: I think that is a point that was also made by activist investor Bill Ackman, who threw his support behind Vivek on Twitter (laughs) this week. Um, I'll also note uh, Maxim Jacobs on Twitter uh, suggested, like Nikki Haley, I think he is running for a cabinet position. Which cabinet position do you think Vivek would be suited for, or at least might be put into?
2: Well, I thought, see, I thought Bill Ackman was throwing his support behind. Vivek because maybe Bill wants to be Treasury Secretary or Fed chair. But maybe <laughs> just that's running for actually, a cabinet position. Right. Maybe that's actually Vivek's. Maybe he wants to be Fed chair. So, you know, we'll see. I, my, I mean my feeling getting back to Damien's point is like I, I feel like Vivek has tried to kind of wrap this sort of anti wokeness in kind of a an intellectual rapper, you know, kind of make it sound more academic than sort of the red meat. Uh, topic issue that it really is, and and Ron DeSantis from Florida has kind of grabbed hold of that too. So, like, are there going to be these two competing anti-woke presidential candidates out there? I also kind of look ahead and say, like, if if, if he does sort of become a credible candidate, you know, you can kind of see uh, opponents and opposition research out there that is starting will will examine Vivek's record as a hedge fund manager and you know invariably someone will find some cancer drug stock that he shorted when he when he was at his hedge fund and you know that will become some you know 30 second tv ad <laughs>
1: Last week, there was a change at the top of Pharma, or the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, which is, of course, the trade group representing the drug industry. Novartis CEO, Vasner Narasimhan, became the chair of the board of directors.
0: Vaz has been CEO of Novartis since 2018, and he recently revealed uh, to me at the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference that he is a regular listener of the Read Out Loud. So, of course, we wanted to invite him on. Vaz, welcome to the podcast.
4: Hey Meg, great to be here. Great to be here with you, uh, Adam and Damien. Huge fan of the podcast, so really excited to, to speak with you all. So let's start with the
2: role you've just taken for pharma, a group that spends about thirty million dollars a year in lobbying. What are the issues that you are most focused on there?
4: Three main issues, uh, Adam. First, you know when you think about the IRA, trying to get adjustments to the IRA that we think would be more pro-innovation and really ensuring the right medicines get to the Medicare patient population. In particular, we believe that the nine years of protection before price controls take hold in the small molecule space is simply too short to really allow us to do the indication expansions, focus on rare diseases, also to ensure oncology and cardiovascular medicines really reach the patients that, that need it. So that's one big focus. Second is PBM reform. Um, and that's been, I think, a long topic for the industry. But the hope is we can get reforms in place with the goal in mind that we want patients to pay at the pharmacy counter or at the hospital the net price that the insurers pay. And that's net of all of the rebates that we provide. Uh, and if that were to happen, patients would find their drugs more afford- affordable, starting with the first dollar and of course, also it would impact their co-pays as well. And as you know, in many drug classes, that, that rebate can be as much as 70% of the list price of the drug. And the third pr- priority is continuing to reform the 340B program, where, you know, the intention of that program is to allow patients from low-income communities or communities that don't have access to great health care to access better healthcare, We fully support that. But this is a program that's expanded far, we believe, beyond its remit and needs to get better clarity on what are the eligible institutions, the eligible patient populations, so that it actually serves its intended purpose. So those would be the three top priorities for for the uh, pharma this year.
1: So the legislation you're referring to is, of course, the Inflation Reduction Act, um, which which passed and carried these provisions that affect uh, the drug industry, as you described. The passage of that bill and its signing into law was perceived, I think, as, as a pretty massive defeat and a failure for pharma in terms of advocating for itself. Those are my words and not yours. But I'm curious, you know, with that in such recent past, moving forward, I don't know, is there is there a process of of evaluating what went wrong from the pharma side such that this happened in the first place when setting in motion the, the stuff that you just described?
4: I think it's an important point, Damien. We, we've had that discussion at the board level to really see what are the learnings we can take away. And I think that the biggest learning is we need to be more proactive as an industry in offering solutions to the clearly the challenges that constituents are putting forward to policymakers. And I think if we can get sharper at that, do better at that, hopefully we can get better policy in place. I think it's important to note with the Inflation Reduction Act, there's some really good things that, that happen. I think that the out-of-pocket cap for patients in Medicare and the smoothing that's happened is going to allow patients to afford their medicines in, in an effective way. And I think that was a real success of the legislation. But I think when you look at some of the damaging provisions, like the price setting after nine years in small molecules, that will have a big impact on what is really about 60% of the drugs this industry generates. Um, and many of those drugs targeting the elderly population. So I think we've got to get sharper at, at offering good solutions in the future.
2: Is there anything more specific you can say about what pharma plans to do about the provisions in the IRA that that you know the industry opposes? I, I mean, maybe even more specifically, do you plan to sue uh, to stop some of those uh, provisions?
4: Well, I think there's gonna be a couple of steps in this whole process. First, you know, Medicare and I think many of the companies have had the opportunity and Medicare has been very open to feedback from pharma and the industry on the various provisions is going to put forward draft guidance on how they're planning to implement, how they select drugs, how they then think about to negotiate the price setting provision across nine different parameters. And how they'll actually implement the the rebates, and I think once those come out, we'll have the opportunity to comment. And certainly, I think if the industry perceives that these aren't sensible, we'll have to look at what what actions we can take. And I think that's it's still early days to really determine that. I think longer term, we'd want to look at legislative uh, you know fixes to the provisions around nine years for small molecules. So I think that'll take time, though. I mean, realistically, given where Congress is right now. Um, we have to see if there's really any vehicle or any opportunity to, to shift that. But if you think about the, the impact that's going to have, if you are going to develop a new oncology medicine, which you have to do multiple life cycle managements, and you, you know this well. If you think about rare diseases where we stack multiple indications over time, if you think about small molecule cardiovascular drugs where it takes time for these drugs to get taken up. I mean, nine years is a very short window to make significant investments to actually get those returns back. So I think it will harm innovation in that, in that part of the ecosystem over time.
0: So you mentioned that nine-year provision really affecting sort of drug development decisions, um, maybe sort of uh, segueing into our conversation about Novartis as well. Um, are you guys making decisions about you know not developing drugs in certain ways for certain indications because of that provision?
4: Yes. I mean, I think it's having an impact on how we look at new, I would say, new development programs. Of course, in-flight development programs, we continue forward. But I think when you think about, let's say, let's take a case study, if you have an oncology medicine where you know that it's predominantly for the elderly and you're going to have to step through a late-line therapy to an earlier line to the adjuvant to fully capture the opportunity and make the investment make sense... And then you look at only a nine-year runway to do that. That's actually very challenging. And then, of course, there's the debate, could you hold back, wait? But then I think you get into an ethical conundrum of can you develop a medicine and then not make it available as each indications data set comes through. So that makes you, and when you have multiple opportunities of where you invest invest your resources to develop new drugs, then, of course, you have to make those trade-offs. So it is having, I think, a tangible impact on the decisions we're taking.
2: So you just crossed your fifth anniversary as CEO. You know, when you started, I think the narrative around Novartis was, you know, was facing some patent expirations and had big decisions to make about its eye care and generics business. Now, cue to the present, and you've been describing Novartis as, quote, the next pure play innovation medicines company. What does that mean exactly and what has changed about Novartis since when you took over the company as
4: CEO? Yeah, thanks. And when you look at this company, it's a, I mean, a 250-year-old company. It started in the dye-making industry, went to chemicals, and then slowly evolved into a a, a healthcare conglomerate when Novartis, in its current form, was created in 1996. And we had 1.8 divisions, including areas like animal health, Gerber baby food, of course, as you mentioned, Alcon, Sandoz, consumer health, a vaccines division, which I was heavily involved in. I think what we see today is given how fast science is evolving, technology is evolving, you have to be f- focused in one sector of healthcare and then even focus within therapeutic areas if you want to be competitive. So over the last five years, we've done about $100 billion of transactions to exit consumer health, eye care devices, our plan spin of Sandoz, also some of the investments we had such as our stake in Roche and really say, look, we're going to be pure play innovative medicines. Our, what we believe is differentiating about our approach is we focus on uh, certain therapeutic areas where there isn't a lot of investment, like cardiovascular disease, but also therapeutic areas like oncology, immunology, neuroscience, where there's a lot of investment. And then focus on these new technology platforms where we're one of the leaders in gene therapies, siRNAs, radio therapies, cell therapies, areas where we think medicine is going to head over the next 15 years and if we can focus and do that well that will be the way we create value to society and our and our shareholders but that's a very different view and i think many companies in our sector now are heading down that line of moving from a you know really broad conglomerate to focusing more and more on innovative medicines
1: so we'll get to i think each of those subtopics and technologies as well but i wanted to ask you i mean speaking of the divestitures that's led to you all carrying quite a bit of cash on your balance sheet which has led to you facing Similar, repetitive, maybe uh, at this point, agonizing questions about just how you'll spend it. But I did clock that, uh, I think it was on a recent earnings call that you mentioned you're looking at things that you might purchase in biotech, but keeping it at a limit of about $5 billion per transaction. I was curious, how come? And, and, And what does the field of targets look like at that price? And how did that strategy come about?
4: Well, first I feel would feel remiss if I didn't acknowledge the fact that I listened to your podcast, I think, a couple of months back, and you had a great analyst from Oppenheimer on who really went through the whole biotech sector. And you know, one of the things that's striking when I get this question is also we don't talk enough about what happened in this sector over the last decade when there was so much money available and so many companies formed. Um, was that actually a good thing? And many of these companies probably don't have as rigorous enough science to get as far, to have gotten as far as they have in the development path. So now fast forward to today, when we look at, okay, how do you do M and A? We have a lot of firepower on our balance sheet. You know, one of the challenges is finding really high quality science to acquire because in the end, just because assets are underpriced or low, lower priced, that doesn't necessarily mean we need to collect them. And we need things that have credibility that can ultimately get to market and have a high impact on patients. Um, And that's been a a challenge. Right now where we see the biggest opportunity to find value is in this kind of sub $5 billion, I would say mid-stage development space, at least that's our hypothesis, where you could maybe unlock some opportunities where we have expertise, we have scale, and we can find a way to, to, to make big drugs. I'm out of that. But it is a challenge, I would say. And I do wonder if the kind of full reckoning, and and Damien, you and Adam cover biotech intensely, has the full reckoning happened yet of kind of the cleanup of the sector? And that's something that certainly I'm watching.
0: And maybe you're helping with that <laughs> with some of the some of the deals. Well, maybe.
4: I mean, I think. Look, we've also found a lot of opportunities kind of at the low end of this thing. I mean, a lot of these companies, as you know, are trading under their um, under their cash value, which makes them very eager to unload assets. And then you can find really good assets there. I mean, in places that don't even make the press releases and don't even make the kind of news feeds, but you can find interesting assets because those companies now need to to kind of clean up uh, their their portfolios. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, I think, how the next couple of years evolve.
2: Is, uh, you know, inheriting that question, I, I wonder, is is it because interesting assets that you do find either they're highly valued or maybe overpriced, or is it just difficult to find interesting assets like that the, the science or the companies that are out there sort of starting up that they're wanting in some way, they're, you know, they're lacking in some way and, and you guys are kind of passing
4: on them? I think there's three categories. I mean, there's there's companies that have very good assets or very good science, and the markets have very well valued them. And then if you want to play in that space, you have to pay significant premiums. And And I mean, some companies are willing to do that. We're trying to take a financially disciplined approach about how we approach those kind of what I would characterize as very well analyzed, well valued companies. I think there are these companies that have solid um emerging science which you could take bets on um and certainly I think that's where we're really looking for opportunities and then there's a set of companies that say they've gotten pretty far along the development and when we look more carefully at them we don't see that the right steps have been taken whether that's in technical development clinical development engagement with regulators and then when we get closer we have pause right and, and is it a good is it a good acquisition to make given that profile I don't know why that's happened necessarily, but I have a hypothesis. It's just because you had a lot of capital available and and able to advance very quickly, very far into development.
0: So I think the analyst you're referring to is probably Jared Holtz. But I thought you were going to mention that we talked about Ronnie Gao, who you, you guys did. hired, you yeah, as your <laughs> um, chief strategy and growth officer last year. And of course, we were really sad that he was leaving the analyst community because he really is kind of a different personality. So, how is Ronnie doing at Novartis? And you know what what is he doing, and how is he helping with your strategy?
4: So, Ronnie's been a, a great asset. I mean, I think uh, fully meeting the hopes I had that he would bring, I think, a very unvarnished and very content rich perspective. On our own assets, on our own pipeline, but also bringing in the external view of that kind of competitive analysis. Many of uh, maybe you guys used to benefit from Ronnie's uh, weekly report when he was at Bernstein on the, on the sector. Now I get that report once a week and it's very much focused on what's happened in the sector and what's, how that's impacting Novartis medicines. Um, and so he's having a great impact. I think he's, uh, he's settling in. Well, of course, there's a transition into the, the corporate world. But uh, I'm doing my best to protect him as best I can from uh, not being able to... I want him to be able to say what he thinks and and really feel like he can give us the unvarnished truth.
1: So drilling down a little bit, you mentioned uh, you know that Novartis is really among the sectors that you've really chosen to specialize in or cell in gene therapy. And it seems like, you know, even zooming out from Novartis, that the next couple of years are likely to be pivotal years in the business of gene therapy with multiple approvals and launches of medicines anticipated in sickle cell disease, hemophilia, Uh, where patients have other treatment options. And so it seems like it's kind of a proving ground for how this technology can really make a mark um, in those therapeutic areas. So just curious for your thoughts on, you know, the challenges to date and the outlook when it comes to pricing and getting reimbursement and and really securing patient access for some of these one-time medicines.
4: Yeah. And as, as you guys know, I mean, with Zolgensma, we had an a, a important experience, probably a formative experience in the industry where we were able to launch a transformative medicine. And in that case, I think pretty remarkable efficacy in kids who are particularly kids who are under six months of age. And it's been successful. It's a blockbuster medicine. We're reimbursed in 38 countries. Um, we have in general, when newborn screening happens, the medicine has high uptake. And then what happened, at least in, in, I think in the sector and also in our own experiences, it became a lot harder to find a good match between a gene therapy, a disease, the right vector, the right construct. Um, and so I think the science then had to catch up. I think it is catching up. And now I think, Damien, to your point, there's going to be the question of there are gene therapies that are addressing diseases that have no really good therapies. And if that's a severe enough disease and you have enough efficacy, like the Zolgensma story... I think you can make a pretty successful medicine. I think when you have alternative treatments, the question is, particularly if you have to take, in some instances, some of the therapies you mentioned, you have to do uh, bone marrow conditioning, right? And these are pretty heavy if you're going to do ex vivo cell therapies. How many patients are ultimately going to want to do that versus chronic therapies they already have and how are payers going to view that? I think those are going to be important questions. Um, and I think it's going to be also important to figure out from a payment model standpoint, Zolgensma alone didn't change the model to kind of what people had thought, which would be payments over time, let's say a phased payment rather than paying the full amount in the first year. It, was, it wasn't it was big enough to really make payers want to shift. The question is when you have five, six, seven gene therapies, you probably do need a model change. And you're going to need not only a model change at the, at the state level, at the insurer level, but also how best price is calculated. I mean, there are many things that have to fall into place in the United States to allow you to do pay over time or pay for per, per, per performance. And I think those topics are going to come to a head. I don't know exactly how it's going to play out. I ultimately believe if you have a solid gene therapy with transformative efficacy, with Raya, with Zolgensma, with others in the space, you can get broad access. The question will be when you have kind of modest or solid, but not transformative efficacy, you still have a one-time therapy, high price, how are payers going to navigate that? Um, it would be interesting to see.
2: Where do you see the outlook for in, when, getting back to cell therapy, particularly CAR T? I think one of the interesting dynamics in play has been, you know, the patient patient specific therapies uh, versus the off the shelf uh, and the sort of the development of off the shelf therapies. What what's your thought on where, that, where the field is going? It seems like this, this sort of where I look at it from my perspective is that, you know, there was a lot of excitement about off-the-shelf cell therapies, but maybe it's waned a little bit. You know, there's been questions about durability. And it seems like particularly as the, as the kind of the as patient-specific CAR-Ts have moved ahead into earlier lines of care that they've kind of, you know, they've sort of kind of got really settled into the market and are, are making are gaining ground. What's your, what's your thoughts on that?
4: Yeah, I think on cell therapy, you know, when you think about autologous cell therapy, the the dynamics have been that all the companies are getting their cost of goods down and getting this much more efficient supply up. So, um, and I think we, were and others are working on what we call rapid CAR Ts. We call ours T charts, but others have them as well, which are trying to reduce cogs even further, increase capacity more. So that kind of eliminates, at least in our view, the need for allo carts, You know, off the shelf CAR T therapies. A lot of the value proposition goes away based on on those technologies. So I think that's one dynamic you're seeing play out. I think the other ones are very important when you raise, Adam, as these therapies get earlier and earlier in the lines of care, it's harder to do comparative studies because you have to do a comparative study versus an established therapy in one of those lines of care. And so if you're a small biotech and you want to do a head-to-head versus one of the established CAR-T therapies, this is not not at all straightforward to, to pull off. I think the other dynamic I, I think that's going to come, and, it, and already many companies are working on it, including us, is how CART therapy, cell therapies are going to impact severe other severe conditions outside of oncology. There was a huge amount of effort to move from uh, B cell tumors into solid tumors. Solid tumors are so heterogeneous, it's been hard to find, I think, reliable targets that, that have really generated good efficacy. But there's been some pretty impressive findings on patients who have severe immunological diseases where, you know, cell therapies seem to have an impact. And I expect many players now to shift to say, can you apply these technologies? It would be in severe patient populations to our earlier discussion because you need bone marrow conditioning. But in those patients who have no other alternative with severe immunological diseases, could CART therapy be a solution? I think it's going to be an important trend to watch.
0: Okay, we have kept you for a long time, so we're gonna transition now into more of a rapid-fire uh, set of questions that might be slightly more fun than the ones we've posed to you so far. Uh, the first one: uh, most exciting new technology that has the the most potential to be transformative to medicine. What is it right now?
4: Within Novartis, it's radioligand therapy. I mean, it's not; it's a little bit off off the maybe the general path, but with the, the results we're seeing now in solid tumors with radioligand therapies are 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 pretty extraordinary. I think in the in the longer term for cardiovascular disease and other I think siRNAs and especially as we can direct siRNAs to tissues beyond the liver I think long acting therapies that patients only need every 6 months or 1 year are going to transform healthcare over time.
1: Okay, which of these cities has better food? Cambridge, Massachusetts or Basel, Switzerland?
4: Oh, Cambridge, Massachusetts to be a fair disclosure I lived in Boston, I think, for eight or ten years, and we continue to have a home in in the Boston area. So, yeah, there. And I lived in Cambridge as well um, for eight years. My kids were born while we lived in Cambridge. So I'm a I'm a Cambridge restaurant.
2: What what's your go to? What's your go to Cambridge dining spot?
4: Where you like to go? Uh, I'm now I don't know what what the promotional impact will this be, but Oliana, yeah, I love Oleana. I think it's one of my my favorites.
2: Yeah, great. What about that's a great restaurant. What about a casual spot? Where, where does you and the family go uh, when you just need to get a quick bite to eat out in Cambridge?
4: Uh, area Four Pizza. All right, good good choice. Good
2: also choice.
0: good for the biotech mingling <laughs> being right there next to
2: <laughs> yeah, all exactly. of the
0: biotech companies.
2: So, as you may have heard, uh, that biotech investor and entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy is reported to be considering a presidential run. Do you think that this industry provides good training to be president?
4: <laughs> um, well, I, I know Vivek, and I, I think he's a brilliant person, so I mean, all hats off for him for, for his aspirations. I, I don't know if this industry provides training to be a president. Certainly being a CEO provides training on many dimensions I would have never imagined. And maybe some of those might be useful um, in in politics. But, uh, yeah, that's probably all I can say on that, Adam.
1: (laughs) Well, with that, Voss, thank you so much for joining
4: us. Thank you, guys. Really an honor to be here. Really appreciate it. I do love the podcast. (laughs) I think it's uh, really, really well done. I love when Helen comes on board. I think she's really, really good on the pandemic. As a vaccinologist by background, I love listening to her talk about pandemics. I mean, the one she did last week on avian influenza was really, really good. So uh, yeah, I think guys keep going. I mean, I think it's really, it's really good. That does
1: it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode.
0: Our senior producers are Hyacinth Ambinato and, and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel.
2: And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you'd prefer Meg or Damien to go out on the campaign trail with Vivek. I am too <laughs> old to do that. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud
1: at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast.
0: See you next week.